I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin reading with verse 1, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The uh, key to this passage of scripture is in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What comes before this is a series of blessings that Christ brings. And so we... That'll be the first thing that we'll see, the, the blessings that Christ brings. And then from that little text, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, we see something about the person of Christ, who he was. He was both a child and a son. Then we'll see that a, a government has been given to him. The government is upon his shoulders. And then next we see the character of Christ. It's described in Four couplets, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we see the character of Christ there, and then in the concluding verse, in verse 7, we see the character of his kingdom. I don't know if they require students to read Silas Marner anymore. It used to be a fairly common required read for, I think, in the sophomore year to read Silas Marner. It's a very, it's a very good story. If you've never read it, uh, I recommend it to you. Uh, I'll not give away too much of the story, but uh, Silas Marner was a miser, someone who lived for nothing except accumulating wealth. And then one night, his wealth was stolen, and he was in deep, deep despair. And through a series of unusual events, his door was left open, and through the door one night, a little toddling orphan girl walked into Silas Marner's house. 
And he discovers her standing in front of the fire. It's a snowy night, and he discovers her standing in front of the fire. And uh, her mother has died. Her father is not in the picture at this time. And uh, so Silas Marner takes her into his charge. And then you see an utter transformation that takes place over Silas Marner. Instead of being a miser who is controlled controlled only by the desire for acquiring wealth, he becomes someone who plunges his life and his energies into rearing this little child who has wandered in. And he is utterly transformed by this child. And I think that is a fit introduction for this sermon that I might title, The Difference That Jesus Makes. The Difference That the Birth of the Child Has Made. And uh, so we, we see these wonderful blessings that are described in the first part of my text, and they're all described in very gripping word pictures. So in our Sunday school class, we were talking about the importance of uh, understanding word pictures and being able to be influenced by poetry. Here is a great example of word pictures being used. The blessings are all described in such a way that ought to leave you saying, wow, I want that person to govern me. I want to be under that kind of rule. One of the principles of uh, composition is that you don't say the waterfall was beautiful. Instead, you describe the waterfall in such a way that makes me, the reader, say, wow, that was a beautiful waterfall. And that's what happens here. There are various blessings of Christ's kingdom that are described. And the first description is that his, the blessing of his kingdom is like a great light that shines in a dark place. You can see that there in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I think it's interesting that it says the people who walked in darkness and not just the people who sat in darkness. Walking in the darkness will make you long for a light. I mean, if it's dark enough, because you bump into things and you're not sure what's there. I'm reminded of uh, something that happened years ago when a friend of mine and I were going to go frog hunting in a lake that we knew about. It was a public lake, and uh, in order to get there, we parked at the top of a wooded hill, and we were carrying our rubber raft down the hill. And uh, it was dark, and we did not want to waste the battery on our flashlight, and so we were walking in the dark. And my friend was walking ahead of me, and he stopped, and he said, Jim, turn on the light and shine it up here. And so I turned on the light, and he was standing right on the edge of a cliff, a cliff that it would have hurt to fall over. (laughs) And uh, so... When you're walking in the dark, you're in danger. You don't know what you're going to bump into. And I think that the people walking in darkness here, there's a, the idea of we want the light. We, we want to see what's here. The coming of Christ brings the blessing of light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Notice the juxtaposition of a great light into deep darkness. Deep darkness needs a great light. And a great light will dispel even deep darkness. On them has light shone. 
So this is describing a, a specific people, but I think that you can apply it to your own life. Are you at a loss as to what the meaning of life is? Do you feel like you are walking in the dark? Do you need direction? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the blessings of his kingdom is that he brings light. And then look in verse 3. We see a second characteristic of Christ's kingdom. You have multiplied the nation. Let's just stop right there. You have multiplied the nation. Now here the nation is conceived to be the holy people of God. So there is no nation on earth now that is the holy people of God. Instead, the people of God are the people of Christ. And uh, in recent months here at Bullet Lick, we have been uh, greatly encouraged to see the Lord saving people, bringing people into the church, seeing the, the auditorium increasingly filled. Isn't that a great joy? Absolutely, it's a great joy. Just think, some of you, some of us, have been in churches where the opposite was happening, where things were slowly drying up, things were slowly withering away. The church was dying, and we, and we felt it. And what a, what a contrast to that is this blessing that Christ brings, you have multiplied the nation. And this is what the Lord has been doing in the 2,000 years since his birth. There are, the light of the gospel is going forth into the world, and, and the darkness is being dispelled. And yes, there is, uh, there are things to be sad about and things to be alarmed about, but the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's kingdom, and the nation will continue to be uh, multiplied. So he sends a great light. He multiplies the nation. And then notice also in verse 3, he sends great joy. They rejoice, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And then there are two word pictures to describe this great joy. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I think there is widespread misconception about uh, what the influence of Christ does to a person. It doesn't take away joy. That's the misconception. Instead, it, it fills with a real joy. Christ comes, and one of the blessings is that he brings joy. The kind of joy like country people would rejoice when they had a good harvest. A good harvest meant security. A good harvest meant we're not going to starve in the winter. But then also... Uh, at harvest time, people would get together and help one another with the harvest. And so there's the rejoicing of community that Christ brings. He brings great joy, the joy as of at the time of harvest with, with community and with a sense of security. But then there's also a sense of relief that a great danger has passed. The joy is also described as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So that after, after a battle, then the, 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 victor, the victors would go into the city and take the good things that were there or go out and take the, the, the treasure that might be on the bodies of the dead that they have conquered. Perhaps a little more uh, relatable for us is the, the sort of thing that we sometimes see at basketball tournaments or at, at track meets. Uh, often there will be a, a trophy table that is prominently displayed. 
And uh, at the conclusion of the tournament, the victors get that trophy, or maybe everybody on the team gets a trophy, and they are happy about it. The, one of the blessings that Christ brings is great joy, the kind of joy that is associated with a, a bountiful harvest, the kind of joy <clears throat> that is associated with a mighty victory. And then in verse 4, we see that another blessing that Christ brings is the, the blessing of freedom from oppression. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So there are three ways that the oppression is described here. There's a yoke, there's a staff, there's a rod. Well, we know what a yoke is, the sort of thing that is uh, put on an animal to make the animal work for you. And uh, I don't think animals are always miserable when they're doing that. I think that... uh, Maybe even they have a sense of purpose that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know. But when you are forced to work for someone else and not for pay, children, I'm not talking about you at home, taking out the garbage. Uh, But when, when you're forced to work for someone without pay, it's very demoralizing uh, to, be, to be a slave of a harsh, unjust taskmaster would be a very sad life. Well, there is a a harsh taskmaster that has exercised uh, a a tyrannical authority over us, and that is sin. But through Jesus Christ, the yoke of the burden is broken. We're most familiar with rod and staff because of our having thought about Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So if you are a sheep and your shepherd has a staff, he will use it to guide you into the right way and away from danger. But if it's your enemy who has a staff, then he's treating you harshly with that and making you do what you don't want to do. If it's our good shepherd who has a rod, then we're comforted because he's able to use that to drive away enemies. But if our, if our enemy, a harsh taskmaster, has a rod, then he's using it to abuse us and to hurt us. And so here's this yoke, this staff, and this rod that are being wielded by an oppressor to hurt us. And because of Jesus, those things are broken. They're not just taken away and thrown away. He breaks them so that they will no longer have rule over us. So the blessings that come from Christ, the child who is born, light in a great darkness, a multiplied nation, joy, great joy, the release from oppression, and then in verse 5, great and lasting peace. It says in verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. No more war. The war is ended between us and, and, uh, and, and God's wrath, between us and God's justice. That war is ended because of Jesus. So these are five blessings that Jesus brings with him. They have come to us because, verse 6, a child is born and a son is given. And here we see the person of Christ. Now let me explain what I mean by person. And it may help if, uh, uh, if I remind you of something that we have studied in the catechism uh, that, uh, that 
in Christ, there are two natures in one person. Two natures. Sometimes we might sloppily say that we have two natures, but what we really mean is that we have a human nature that is both good and evil. We don't really technically have two natures, but Jesus did. Jesus technically had a human nature, and he technically had a divine nature. And I think that that, those two natures combined in one person, so... It's, hard, it's hard, to, hard to explain what a person is. Of course, you're a person. Angels are persons. God is a person. Uh, it is a, a center of self-awareness. It is someone who is capable of self-reflection, someone who is capable of interaction with other persons. We personify our animals and pretend like they're talking to us, but they're really not persons. Uh, you, you are a person. And uh, Jesus had two natures. It wasn't that instead of a human soul, he had the divine nature. No, he had, a, he had a, a body and a human soul. Soul and body are essential to being fully human. Jesus had uh, a, a true body and a reasonable soul. But he also was fully God. He is the one that I read about in the opening scripture reading from John chapter 1, who was with God, through whom all things were made, and without him nothing that was made that has been made. He was the God-man. And uh, when God-man is hyphenated, there is no more important hyphen in all the world. It means that he was as much God as if he were not man, and he was as much man as if he were not God. And I use past tenses to describe that, but it's still true today. Jesus is still the God-man. When he, when he went to heaven, he took, his body, he took his body with him, now glorified, but he is still as much man as if he were not God, and as much God as if he were not man. And I think that that is intimated here in this. It won't work if you turn it around. Look, look with me at verse 6. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. It doesn't work if you say, for to us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The child who is born refers to Jesus in his human nature. The son given refers to Jesus in his divine nature. So this is a very succinct summary of orthodox Christology. In other words, it tells us who Jesus was, fully man and fully God. Unto us a child is born, that's his humanity. Unto us a son is given, that's his divinity. And both of these natures were essential to his accomplishing the purpose for which he was sent. If you were paying attention in my pastoral prayer, I explained it in the prayer uh, to say that since, since innocence was lost by a man, since sin entered by the disobedience of a man, in God's way of doing things, according to God's house rules, innocence has to be regained by a man. The penalty for sin has to be borne by a man. And so it was necessary that Jesus be completely human. 
But then it was also necessary that Jesus be completely divine so that what his human nature was required to endure, he might be able to endure since he was sustained by his divine nature. So he can stand as a perfect representative between God, because he is God and represents God, a representative from man because he is man and can represent man. So there is, in just two short phrases, the character of Christ. Notice next, at the end of that verse, we're introduced to the fact that he is going to have a government. So we've seen the blessings of his government. Now we've just finished seeing the character of Christ. Now let's see the fact that he has a government. And it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. So Jesus is not merely a religious figure that helps you to think wisely about competing decisions in life. We have a tendency to think of religion that way, that religion is just helping us to make good decisions, to turn away from bad things, and then hopefully that we get to go to a good place when we die. He is all of that, but he is a, he's a governor, he is a ruler, he is a king, and uh, the, the governance of the universe has been entrusted into the hands of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago on Sunday morning, I preached to you from John chapter 5 when Jesus says, yes, I am equal with the Father because I'm doing two things that no one but God can do. And the first thing is I raise the dead and give them life. And the second thing is all governance, all judgment has been entrusted to me. And so he says that three times in John chapter 5. I have been entrusted with judgment which is more than merely making decisions about guilty or not guilty at the end of time. It includes that, but it is even the governance of the universe right now. So this one who is eminently qualified to serve in the role has been conferred with the role, and the government has been put upon his shoulder. Now let's move on and see, fourthly, the character of Christ. And then we've got one thing left after that, and that's the character of his government. But now let's see the character of Christ, and it's described in these, these, four, these four couplets. So his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. I think maybe in the King James Version there was a comma after wonderful. I think the comma needs to be removed. So that his name, one of his names is not Wonderful, but here it's saying his name is Wonderful Counselor. You see, the next three are also combinations of two things. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so I think that here we have four couplets. And so Jesus is, first of all, we're thinking about his character, he is a counselor. A counselor is someone who gives you wisdom when you may not be able to see it for yourself. He tells you the right way to go. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He has amazing insight into your situation and my situation and what we need. And when we follow his counsel, we're walking in the paths of wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. But then secondly, he is mighty God. He is God. He's not some lesser God, 
There is only one mighty God, and Jesus is mighty God. The mighty God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is one of the divine trinity. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He is an everlasting Father. Now, how do we fit that into the trinity? Since Jesus is the Son and there is a Father, I think that calling Jesus everlasting Father is similar to the way that Paul speaks to some of the people who had been converted under his ministry, and he says to them, I am your Father in Christ. Uh, you, you might have many other people who help you and who speak to you, but you have only one Father in Christ, and I am that Father. You may have someone in your life that you call the, your spiritual Father. I think that's the way that it's used here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that He is confused with the Father, but that He is the author of our spiritual life in the way that a Father is the author of our physical life. And he is the everlasting father. He is not a temporary father, but everlastingly in covenant relationship with us. So he's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. And he is a prince. He's the prince of peace. When you first come uh, under the sway of Jesus Christ, it's likely that there will be some conflict in your life that uh, there will be some, perhaps some relationships that will have to be altered, some relationships that may have to be severed. Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. No, I came to bring a sword. From now on, there will be divisions among your most intimate relationships. And he names four or five of them, father against children, children against parents, and so on. And so at first, there will be some division. But the division is for the sake of eventually bringing peace because he is the prince of peace. And so there's a description of Christ's character. Now let's wind up this sermon by seeing the character of his government as described in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so his, his influence is going to continue to grow and it's not going to end until it is consummated. And even then, the peace will have no end. There will eventually come a time, I suppose, when no more humans are going to be brought into the kingdom of God. It will be the end of time, and the judgment will come. But, and so there will be no more increase that way, but there will be continued increase of joy in His presence. There will be a continued enjoyment of peace in His presence. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. This kingdom that he has, this government that he administers, is one that is pleasing to God. That's the idea of it saying in verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it. David is the king among all the kings of Israel who was admired for being a man after God's own heart. David was not without his faults, but he is the most popular and the most beloved of all of the Israeli kings. And so when it says that Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, I think it refers to the character of his throne. I think it also refers to the legitimacy of his throne. He is a legitimate heir to the throne of David. And because it had been prophesied that the Messiah would come from David. And so Jesus reigns legitimately and he reigns 
in a way that is pleasing to God because he's sitting on the throne of the man who is after God's own heart. So his government is pleasing to God. Is it pleasing to those over whom he governs? It says, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Those are the conditions that everyone wants to live under. Justice and righteousness. And even if someone doesn't want to obey the law, he still wants other people to obey the law. Even if someone doesn't want to be a righteous person himself, he wants other people to be righteous. In this kingdom that the Lord Jesus administers, it's pleasing to God. It's also pleasing to those over whom he reigns in love and who have submitted to his governorship. Is all this really going to happen? Look at the final verse of my text. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Today I summon you to join a kingdom that is full of light, a kingdom that is full of joy, a kingdom that is increasing, a kingdom that is a kingdom of peace. I summon you to come under the, the captainship to join an army where the captain is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. It is, a, it is an endeavor that is certain to end in victory. Because of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. These are some of the blessings that Christ brings. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.